Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning uh, because your word uh, works. It does what you send it to do. It accomplishes all that you intended to accomplish. Uh, It's a wonderful and joyful and relieving reality that this is not dependent on me. Um, That we trust your spirit to speak. We trust your spirit to convey the truth of your word and to interpret your word and to exegete and exposit the truth and draw it out to see what it is you have to teach us so we would know you better, so we'd be more satisfied in you and enjoy you forever. Because if this doesn't lead to us loving you more, God, then what's the point? And so we just pray that your word would be unleashed by the power of your spirit to do whatever work you have designed it to do today. And whatever that might be, Lord, whether we understand it or not, we trust you. And so we hand this time over to you for your glory and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue to explore the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, we find the importance of not only the deacon's responsibility to continue in faithfulness to Christ, but every believer's responsibility to continue in faithfulness to Christ. Meaning, as we'll see, obedience. Obedience is required. And I'll say this, because when we start talking about obedience, we start flirting with this idea of grace and what the relationship between grace and obedience is. And, and uh, we'll also begin to flirt with this idea of at what point does our obedience becomes more, become more of a work or works-based kind of uh, salvation or a works-based eternal security, this idea that, well, I have to obey to stay saved, which is not biblical. And so we want to avoid the works-based eternal security. We don't want to avoid grace, but there's a balance and it can be tricky. And what we see is the requirement in 1 Timothy 3 for this continued faithfulness. But the, the, the solution and the answer to this works-based mentality for eternal security, that obedience, the idea of, I mean, I don't know any Christian who would say out loud, I don't have to obey. Like, every believer understands the importance of obedience, that we're commanded to obey a plethora of commands that God gives us in Scripture, uh, particularly in the New Testament, maybe more specifically in the New Testament, because um, we see more commands for the church and direction and instructions, and we need to follow those things, and so it's important that we obey them. But when the church starts to preach the importance of obedience, it starts to, I don't know, Christianity gets a little more real. The way I've always put it is, um, when you listen, when you read the Bible, okay, when you read Jesus's words, like just imagine, I think I said this a few weeks ago, just imagine as you open up your Bible and you go to the Gospels and you see Jesus talking, just pretend for a second that he actually means what he's saying. 
Like we don't often, I say we, I mean maybe the church in general. I don't mean us specifically here. Um, and I think all of us probably do this to some extent at some times. But we don't really take Jesus at his word. You know? Forgive or your heavenly father will not forgive you. Well, does he mean that? Or does he not mean it? Can I choose not to forgive? And just like, it's all right. If I don't forgive, I'm still covered by grace. So I'm good. Well, that's disobedience. Right? And so we'll talk about what that means. And so when you start talking about obedience, it starts getting really tight in the room. It's like all of a sudden there's this pressure to follow these rules. And that's not the biblical picture of obedience. That a tight restriction of rules. That's not what obedience is about. Obedience in the Bible is the free expression of Christ. There is no better freedom in the world than your ability to obey Jesus. That's the benefit of knowing Christ. Is that before Christ, you couldn't obey God. And in Christ, we can obey God. There's this Freedom we have in the gospel by the power of the spirit, the work of the work of Christ in us, Galatians 2.20. It's Christ who's working in us to express allegiance and alliance and devotion and desire and obedience and righteousness to Christ. So this, it's not a restriction. Obedience isn't a set of rules. You've got to stay inside of it. It's not a restrict. That's legalism. Legalism is restrictive. Obedience is not legalism. So we'll explore that a little bit. Kind of wanted to lay that groundwork for you so you can see where we're going. But before we go there, there's a few other, or a couple other qualifications for deacons that Paul addresses. And so we'll see this kind of work toward this idea of continued faithfulness of obedience. So we get to verse 8, and Paul says at the beginning of verse 8, deacons likewise must be, and we covered a couple last week, so we jump ahead to this. Deacons likewise must be not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The command to avoid being drunk on alcohol is clearly communicated for all believers. This is not just about deacons, but it's especially for somebody who's going to serve the church in a particular role that is established by God to be a role of service in the church. And like I said last week, deacons are not church leaders, but they are leaders by example. They're not, they don't have the role of overseer and elder where they lead the church, but they lead the church through service to the church. So their leadership is the example of Christ serving the church. And so they bend over backwards, sacrifice constantly to serve the needs of others. Their, their, their priority is to practice the sound doctrine that the elders are teaching. So the elders teach sound doctrine, which Paul emphasized in the first primarily in the first chapter, but also in the second chapter. So in the first chapter, Paul's pushing for sound doctrine in the face of false doctrines that are being taught. In chapter two, he starts to apply those doctrines in the way that the church functions, the church functions and is structured, male and female roles and leadership and who's doing what and how prayer works and who you should be praying for and all those kinds of things. And then he establishes even more clarity for church leadership in the beginning of chapter three by laying the groundwork for eldership. And those elders lead the church in prayer and in the word. They shepherd the body. They are servants as well. 
Elders, their priority is to serve the church by shepherding them. Servant first. If, if the chief shepherd of the church, Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve, then shouldn't the under shepherds, the elders, the overseers, the under shepherds to the great shepherd who shepherd the church in, in his absence, shouldn't they also come to serve, not to be served? So the elder, primary role, service, but their service is different than the deacon whose primary role is also to serve. The the elder's primary service role is to teach, lead, shepherd, guide, counsel, love, pray. I could go on and on with a bunch of other descriptions as well and and the characteristics that we talked about in eldership and how that should be done. And then with deacons, it's the actual practical outplaying of what the, the elders are teaching and saying and doing and leading and guiding. Right? So, so we've got doctrine that the elders are teaching, and we've got the, the deacons who practice and put into play the actual doctrines. And, and it's not as if the, the, el, uh, the deacons are necessarily putting into practice the doctrine, like, oh, you just taught them this doctrine, let's create a ministry for that doctrine. It's not so, like, um, you know, equal in that sense. It's more that as the church decides where it's going to go with ministry and what things they're going to do, when you have godly deacons who fit these qualifications that Paul is laying out for us, those men can be trusted. Those deacons, whether they're men or women, um, and like I said, we talked about that. I'm going to use the word men for deacons. I'm going to just phrase it in terms of males until next week when we address uh, male and female roles in the church more clearly in terms of deaconship. Um, but for now, I'll just stick with men. And so... These godly men, if they fit these qualifications, then the elders can trust that the kind of man who fits these qualifications is the kind of man who will uphold the sound doctrine that is taught in those particular ministries. So it's a, it alleviates the elders from the burden of having, to, having to, to be involved in every ministry by having trustworthy men. And so it's important that the church recognizes what this role of deacon provides for itself. Like, you would do yourself a disservice to put the wrong man who doesn't fit these qualifications into a role to serve you because he won't do it well. And so it's important that we know these things. It's important that you understand what an elder is, and we addressed eldership earlier in the chapter. And It's important you know what deacons are and their roles and their qualifications because if we bring a man forward or bring a person forward for a particular role and we say, here is the role um, that, or this is a a person that we want, or a man that we want to fill, say, an elder role, we don't have to walk through it all. You've already heard it. You already know it. You know what is required of an elder. You know the qualifications. And you probably already know the man who's being presented. And so you have a concept of, does this man fit these qualifications? And so it's important that we understand these things. Because you might be thinking, why do I need to learn about deacons? Well, first of all, you need to understand the, church, the structure of church leadership. But not only that, you need to be prepared for when deacons or elders are presented to the church to fit a role. And not only that... Every single qualification from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 13, elders and deacons, every qualification, it might be specifically a qualification for elders and for deacons, but they are also a requirement for every Christian. 
What Christian in here would raise their hand and say, I don't have to be above reproach. I don't, I don't have to not get drunk. I, don't, I can be greedy for dishonest gain. I'm not a deacon. We wouldn't talk like that. No one here believes that. So all of these requirements might be specifically about these roles, but this is, this is what the Christian is supposed to look like. And the reason they're specifically stated for elders and deacons is because though these are requirements for all Christians, you don't lose your Christianity if you don't do one of these perfectly one day. Okay? But if you don't fit these qualifications specifically, then there is something you can't do. You can't be an elder or you can't be a deacon. Because the roles that God has for leading and serving the church in these capacities are strict to ensure that the church is being led biblically by installing biblical godly men who qualify according to these texts. Now, as Paul talks about drinking much wine, it's clear, we know, getting drunk is sin. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Meaning, we should, we should not have something other than the Holy Spirit controlling us. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And when you're drunk, you're not under self-control. But you know what you're also not under? You're not under alcohol's control. When you're drunk, alcohol is not controlling you. We tend to think that it is. Like, it's the alcohol made me do it. No, it's not the alcohol. What does alcohol do? It lowers your inhibitions. And what happens when our inhibitions are lowered? Our flesh comes out. When we do dumb things while we're drunk, it's not the alcohol's fault. It's our flesh. The alcohol has just removed the blockade, the conscience. The alcohol has removed the conscience that says, you shouldn't do this. And the flesh goes, hey, there's no more restrictions. Alcohol has removed all the blockades, and I can do stupid things now and not even care about them. And then you wake up the next morning and suddenly you care about them again because inhibitions have, or have returned or, or your conscience has returned because the alcohol is gone. Alcohol is not the problem. Your flesh is the problem. That's always the problem. Paul says in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me. And he clarifies meaning in my flesh. Because what he is really trying to clarify is, but in Christ in me is good in me. But in my flesh, nothing good. That's what Paul says. When we consume alcohol to the point of getting drunk, the flesh rules. And we do very unwise things. And as Paul says, it leads to debauchery. And debauchery literally means reckless indiscretion. So by giving into alcohol, you're handing over control to the flesh and you're suppressing the spirit's influence leading to recklessness and sin. Now, this doesn't mean that a deacon can't drink alcohol. Scripture does not explicitly prohibit the use of alcohol. In fact, there are certain situations where scripture recommends alcohol. Paul recommends alcohol if your stomach isn't feeling well. Uh, wine. And if you're at all wondering, if you may have heard, I heard this a lot growing up. Um, you know, there was a, a common phrase like, 
well, Jesus drank wine. We can drink that. And then I heard the rebuttal from a lot of people. And, and honestly, this rebuttal came most common to me from former alcoholics who'd say that in the first century, their wine didn't have nearly as much alcohol. That's not true. I mean, the fermenting process of alcohol hasn't changed. It is wine like our wine. Uh, maybe not as technologically advanced as we can do things now, but it's pretty much wine. And people clearly got drunk on it. So the idea that you couldn't get drunk on this first century wine is ridiculous. Of course you could. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mentioned getting drunk with wine in Ephesians 5.18. So um, alcohol is a tricky thing in Scripture. We're, we're, we're permitted to use it. We're not restricted from using it. But we're restricted from using it in excess. And we're restricted from getting drunk. So there's this almost maybe little sweet spot for alcohol that would be the only appropriate use of alcohol for the Christian, which is to consume it without getting influenced by it or without it lowering your or removing your conscience to let your flesh rule. And if you know you can't play with that temptation, if you know you can't win that teetering on that temptation to consume more, then avoid it completely. Because the only way to avoid that concern is to just not consume alcohol at all. And uh, I don't want to dive into this whole conversation about how alcohol and Christianity works together, uh, because that's really not Paul's point. Paul's point is the deacon cannot be a drunk. And, and it's, it, it goes even further than that, though, because Paul isn't explicitly saying the deacon can't be a drunk. I, I, even the secular world, if, if you went to an unbelieving atheist friend of yours and said, hey, at my church, the pastor's a drunk. Don't you, even the secular world would be like, that's not right. Like, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that that's not appropriate. So I don't think that Paul is saying is just emphasizing that the deacon can't be addicted to much wine or can't be an alcoholic or drinking all the time or getting drunk often. But I think what Paul is really aiming at is the reputation of an elder in his relationship to alcohol. Like this man has to be wise with his consumption. Even if, let's, even if he never gets drunk, but he's known in the community as the guy who drinks all the time. But well, hey, I never got drunk. That would be just as bad as, I think that would qualify here for disqualification. Because it's imperative that the men who serve as elders and deacons are fulfilling and ex- fulfilling their particular roles based on these qualifications in an effort to reflect and reveal the nature, character, the nature and character of Jesus Christ to the world and to the church. And so for... For to be a man who's identified as a drinker is also inappropriate. So wisdom with alcohol is mandatory. If it's not something you can manage well, avoid it completely. If it's something you can manage well, then manage it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to do it. You've got to ask yourself this question. And Alyssa, I was a youth pastor for a long time. And the number of hypothetical questions young people come up with, especially these like middle schoolers, 12 and 13 year olds, you know, you teach them an idea and they're like, well, what if, and they come up with like these astronomically weird and never going to happen scenarios. And you're like, I 
felt like my whole life as a youth pastor was answering these wacky hypotheticals. But the, just imagine if, if you were drinking every day, consuming alcohol every day, okay? But never getting drunk. So that's the hypothetical. And when kids ask me hypotheticals in my youth time, I always have the same answer. I mean, I would try to answer it specifically, but it always boiled down to this one question that I would ask them. Does it glorify God? I mean, that is like the easiest question to ask somebody. Does it glorify God? Maybe another way to say it is, would you do that with Jesus? If he was like here with you, you know, it's like the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? If Jesus was sitting next to you, would you drink that drink? Would you do this thing or do that thing? Is what you're doing glorifying God? I mean, you have to ask yourself that question in every activity you do. Okay? Today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Um, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers a month ago. Uh, <laughs> I think I forgot to say it. <laughs> Back, back in May. Uh, so I told my wife, I'm like, well, I can't say Happy Father's Day today because I forgot to say Happy Mother's Day a month ago. And the ladies are not going to like that. So Happy Father's Day and Happy Mother's Day. And uh, let's say you go out for Father's Day and let's say you're going to go golfing today. And you're going to go out on the courses. Everything you do from the club you pick to the drink you buy to, the, to how you drive the cart on the course or the, the meal you choose at dinner with your family tonight or how you interact with your kids for Father. What, every little detail, the things that you do has to be filtered through this question, am I glorifying God? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Everything has to be filtered through the glory of God. Everything needs to be filtered through the word of God. And so if we should be applying that to even the most mundane everyday activities that we engage in, then how much more should it be involved as a question that we process and filter through when we're considering alcohol? So it's important that the man who's a deacon is spirit-led, spirit-filled, and not known as being addicted to much wine. The deacon, moving on, must also not be greedy for dishonest gain. There's a very important role in the church, and it is called money management, or you know, the finances of the church are very important. Not because money's so important, but because money is one of the greatest temptations. Jesus talked about money. Money and hell were his two most talked about topics. Money's a tricky thing. You know, you could say, well, I don't need alcohol. I can live the rest of my life without alcohol. I can abstain from it completely. But how far are you going to get without money? I mean, you need to eat, right? If you have a family, you're commanded to provide for your family. In fact, Paul says in just a couple chapters, so say uh, someone who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Money is important. This is why Jesus talks about it all the time. 
And he says you can't love God and money. You have to pick one. Where are you storing up your treasures? So there's a lot I want to say about money. I'm going to avoid saying all the things I want to say about money. And I will just try to stick to what Paul is getting at, which is this concept of money management in the church. Because what a deacon is most often going to be doing is uh, doing some financial management and overseeing those aspects of the church um, by managing a budget and calculating giving and dispersing money to those in need and receiving money and spending money and handing out money. And with such a role, the man who does that has to be an honest and trustworthy man who is not a, does not abuse his access to church finances. And this is why Paul says in verse 10 that they must be tested for some time so that the, so that the church can gauge whether this is a, a trustworthy man in all areas of qualification. And so the, the importance of, of of money is not that money itself is valuable, but the importance of money in the Bible is that money itself is a great temptation. And why is money such a great temptation? Because money itself isn't really valuable. I mean, it represents, say, gold. Well, you know, most of it represents gold. I think most of our money isn't represented by gold at this point, but it's just paper. And if it's gold, then it's just gold. And what good is gold in your hand? Not, it's, it's, it's worth nothing in your hand. It's not worth anything until what? Until you spend it. You don't apply its value until it's spent. And once you spend it, what do you get for spending it? A thing. You get some product, probably something material. You know, you pay your bills, it provides heat. You pay your mortgage, it provides for your home. You buy groceries at the store, it gives you food. You buy presents so you can give them to people so you can build relationships. You can see how money can be, is necessary and very useful thing that we can use for God's glory. Is it God honoring that I pay my mortgage this month so that my house doesn't get taken away so that my children have a place to live? Yes, of course that honors God. Is it God honoring for me to take $1,000 out of my savings and I've only got $1,000 in my savings and run to a casino and waste it all on the tables? No, not a good use of my money, right? So somehow the use of our money is either effective for God's glory or effective for our desire to consume. And that's the, that's the temptation of money. That money itself isn't really what you want. You want what money gets you. That's why we're tempted by money. And the more of it we have, the more of it we can get. And the cool thing about money, says our flesh, is that you can not only get stuff, but if you have lots of money, you can get lots of other things that can give you power and authority and persuasion. And so money is just a tool that we love that's sinfully love because it gets us things that we want. And if, if we're in, so really a, a love for money, which Jesus tells us not to be lovers of money, to love money is ultimately to lack something that money is trying to fill for you. 
I'm going to tell you what that is. Just think about the Christ-like characteristics that must be lacking in somebody to call them greedy for dishonest gain. What they are lacking is contentment. Despite being commanded to be content in Philippians 4. Paul, he's going to talk to us in chapter 6, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 6. And he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Which is the opposite of someone who is greedy for dishonest gain. So contentment, contentment, being content with what God has given you, being satisfied with what you have. Maybe it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily wrong to want more, but if you want more because you're not content with what you have, then it's sin. A lack of being content with what God has provided you is your way of telling God, you don't know what I need, God. Give me more. You've only given me this much. You haven't given me enough. You're telling God by being discontent that he doesn't know what he's doing, which is ultimately pride, which is the very sin that led to Satan's or Lucifer's demise and being cast from heaven because he basically told God, you don't know what you're doing. You know why I don't know what you're doing, God? Because I'm better than you. And I got better ideas. And I should be worshipped. I got a better idea, God. I don't need this house. I need that house. I, you haven't given me enough money. I need more money so I can do the things that I want to do. God? Now, we wouldn't talk to God that way. But that's our attitude when we lack contentment. So, contentment with godliness that breeds godly gain. You will gain godliness and other aspects of godliness. But discontentment breeds greed, which leads to actions toward dishonest gain. So greed itself is sin, and then greed is going to lead to actions that are going to try to satisfy your greed by doing dishonest things so that you can gain Except that gain is not gaining godliness, but gaining earthly possessions absent of godliness. And that kind of man who does that, he's not fit to serve the church with the trust of the position of deacon. A lack of contentment is ultimately a lack of faith in God. Trusting that he's given you exactly what you need. He's given Grace Church exactly what Grace Church needs. Jesus comforts us in Matthew 6, 25-34 by telling us that God will provide our contentment if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So if you're not content, which would be revealed by your greed, then you're not seeking God and therefore not qualified to serve the church with trust. So we get to verse 9. And Paul says, of the deacon, now we're talking about deacons, okay? But I'm telling you, all these things apply to every Christian, and particularly this one. Because as we're going to see this unfold, uh, this significance of continued faithfulness to Christ. And how important that is to every believer. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, the mystery of the faith is a concept that is repeated throughout the New Testament. And I'm not going to go through that 
idea today. Um, we will examine that in further detail in just a couple weeks when we get to verse 16, when the mystery is brought up again, and then we'll explore the New Testament concept of the mystery of the faith. But the reason it's called the mystery is because it was hidden for ages, and there are a variety of different details of, these, of the mystery that is revealed throughout the New Testament. Uh, but the blessing of Christ is that he reveals the mystery. He unearths what was not known and makes known the way of God, which is through his gospel. And so Christ answers the mystery. The mystery hidden for ages, thousands of years. Truth not really clarified explicitly as it is to us today. Uh, the revelation of the gospel comes in pieces as Israel's history continues. And then in Christ, the mysteries all unveiled and God's plan for humanity and God's plan for his glory and God's plan for his church and for Israel and his nation and his people and all those things come together in this mystery unveiled. And then these New Testament writers all just keep writing, oh, the mystery's revealed and the mystery's been revealed and the mystery's been revealed. It's finally we know it all, which for them was like, woo, man, we, for thousands of years, we didn't know this. And 2000 years later, we grow up in the American church and all those mysteries we've known since childhood, they're not mysteries to us. We're like, why is this a mystery? Why didn't they know about Jesus? Well, because Jesus wasn't born when they were born. You know? and th- so, so it's a different context that we experience this mystery. So not a mystery to us anymore, but it is a mystery to those who don't know Christ. And we unveil the mystery of the gospel to them. And so it's important that the deacon as he says, holds this mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now, the words of the faith are synonymous with the, the word Christianity. Okay, so the, the faith with the article the in front of faith kind of conveys like the, the wholeness of our faith, the entirety of our belief system. And the word mystery means something that is hidden, but not to remain hidden, but to be made known through revelation. So the fact that Paul uses the word hold here, Right? So he says, hold the mystery of faith. That word hold implies that the person already possesses the mystery of the faith. And therefore, the concept of hold means that he must practice continued faithfulness to Christianity. Or a better and synonymous way of saying it is he must practice continued faithfulness Christ or continued faithfulness to the word of God. So our, and he says with a clear conscience, meaning he doesn't only believe it, but he upholds it. That's where the concept of obedience comes in with these words, clear conscience. He doesn't just know the truth, doesn't just understand the gospel and know the word of God. He not only possesses it, but he holds it. In a clear conscience. So he possesses it and maintains it with a conscience that is clear from the guilt that comes from not following it. Meaning, he's obedient. And so his mind is free from the burden of guilt and shame that comes with our sinfulness. And he is free from the condemnation. Like Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, every Christian, and particularly deacons, need to hold this gospel truth, the truth of God's word that they possess, their continued faithfulness to Christ, 
in a clear conscience, which means continual obedience. So our encouragement today is not to focus on the fact that the truth of the gospel was hidden for ages and revealed in Christ at the right time, although that is a glorious doctrine to explore, and we will later. But the encouragement today is to continue, that's a huge word, continue. That word continue is repeated all throughout Scripture in a variety of different forms. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Paul says, I'm being poured out. Okay, we see Jesus continue. He's in the garden, doesn't want to go to the cross, but says, not my will, Lord, your will be done. I'm going to continue. The apostles continue after Christ ascends to heaven. The Spirit continues to work through the church. The continuation of obedience is repeated over and over and over for the Christian in the New Testament. So our encouragement today is to continue faithfully in God's word. To continue faithfully in Christ. This is not an option for the believer. In fact, this is such a strong truth that scripture puts conditions on faithfulness being tied to your salvation. Okay, and this is where we're going to start to flirt with some of these difficult concepts. Uh, we're going to start to flirt with this idea of a works-based eternal security. But I don't think that's what Scripture's doing. So, this truth is just so strongly emphasized in Scripture that oftentimes Jesus and the other authors of Scripture put conditions on obedience, put conditions on your faith in relationship to obedience. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's a conditional statement. If you do this, then this will be true. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. John 15, 14. You are my friends. If... You do what I command you. John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does that mean? If you don't abide in my word, you are not truly my disciples. Conditions. 1 John 2, 3 through 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Hebrews three fourteen. For we share in Christ. If... Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That is the same concept as continue to the end. Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but ki- God's kindness to you. Provided, there's the condition, provided you continue in, ki- in his kindness. If you don't, or he says, otherwise, you too will be cut off. Conditions. Your salvation comes with a condition, and that condition is obedience. Now, that statement that I just said needs clarity. Because I don't want to stand on that statement alone. Scripture is full of conditional statements like these. Many of them are, are maybe not as explicitly clear as these, but many more that confirm the same concept that obedience is evidence of true salvation. And that's really the point here, is that this kind of obedience that Jesus is talking about, that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about, that Paul is talking about, that John is writing about, that, this kind of obedience, he, in no way, shape, or form are they saying, you're saved, 
Now you have to obey. And if you don't obey, then you lose your salvation. That is not what these texts are teaching. The ultimate meaning here is and what Jesus is really getting at in John 15 and in John 8 and what John is getting at in 1 John 2 and Hebrews and Romans, what all these texts are really trying to promote is this concept that if you really are a disciple of Jesus, you will obey. You will. Now, we have to define like what that obedience looks like because are you going to obey perfectly? No. Oh, so then I can disobey all I want. Well, no. So we got to kind of like narrow in on what this means, this idea of obedience means in terms of sanctification. If I'm truly a disciple of Jesus, I will obey. What would that obedience look like? Because I can guarantee you I'm probably going to sin in the next maybe couple weeks. Maybe. Maybe once I might accidentally sin. Right? We all know that it's going to happen. Paul said it himself in Romans 7. Again, he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't want to do what I do want to do. And he blames it on his flesh. So there's no good in me in my flesh. And it shows up sometimes. So it's going to happen. And so we have to identify what this means. Because if these conditions are true, and Jesus means what he means, we need to understand them because it, it, it could mean if you, you know, like John 15, 10, well, I'll use one that is still on, up there for you. Uh, by this we know... Uh, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Well, what if I sin once today, then I broke a commandment, so I'm not saved anymore. That must be what it means, right? Not exactly. The emphasis is that the believer will obey. And we want to we look at this, and then we're going to talk about what it means to disobey then. So the continued faithfulness that we are encouraged to endlessly pursue is meant to produce many good things in you. And one of the things it's meant to produce in you is your confidence and assurance of your salvation in Christ. Because the only people who can obey God are believers. The only people who can obey God are believers. Even an unbeliever who does what would be maybe a biblical thing, which we would technically say, well, they obeyed God's command there, still are in a position of disobedience because they don't know Christ. And so only believers can genuinely satisfy the conditions of these statements. These texts are important because they mean that the heart of a genuine believer, though imperfect and not always obedient, will pursue constantly, fight for, sacrifice for, strive for, And do whatever it takes to achieve and to gain and to grow into righteousness and obedience. That is the heart of one who follows Christ. The heart of one who doesn't follow Christ appeals to grace far too often. That they use grace as an excuse for their sin and use grace as an excuse to not grow. They might not be explicitly sinning really violently all the time. They're just like, they're a good person. They do good things. They go to church. They don't really do. They don't smoke, drink, you know, chew or date girls that do or whatever that phrase is. And, you know, like nothing really bad. They're just, they're, maybe they're just a good guy or a nice lady and they claim to know Jesus. But there's no, there's no passion. There's no pursuit. There's no fight. There's no sacrifice. There's no... 
There's no drive to know Christ. There's no desire that burns within to know Jesus, to pursue God, to do the things that require whatever it is God is calling you to do next or whatever sanctifying process he has you in. We only get a few years on this earth and we waste it on like TV and video games and I don't know, dumb things. Doesn't mean you can't have leisure. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy things that are recreational and somewhat meaningless. You can enjoy those things in a meaningful way that honors God, absolutely. But we waste so much of it. When we have all this time and all this opportunity to pursue with everything we have, God, and, and, and he's not far from us. That's the crazy thing. It's, it's like, it feels like so much work to pursue God. And he's like, I wrote a whole book. It's sitting on your dining room table. Like, <laughs> just open it. I'm there. And, and to be honest, to experience my presence, you don't need the Bible either. I'm here. I will never leave you or forsake you. The presence of God is the only reason God is absent from your presence is because you're not aware of his presence. He's never absent. And so I'm, I'm trying to create for you this, this idea that the Christian life is defined in the New Testament as a constant, vigorous and vehement and fervent pursuit of Jesus Christ. Like, you just don't see. Now, I know, we don't, I know we don't get the whole picture of everything the disciples are doing every second day to day. I'm sure there was plenty of time where they had maybe downtime. But the story that's told in the Gospels is the it's particularly in Acts, is the apostles taking the gospel and running. And they don't stop. And they run to the synagogue. And they preach the gospel. They get pulled out of the synagogue. They get beat. They get told, don't preach that again. They go, okay. And they go right back to the synagogue. And they preach it again. And they get beaten. And they get taken out. And they go to a different city. And they get beaten and stoned there. And all these men die for their faith. They are constantly pursuing Christ. And what God has called them to. They are vigorously and passionately and zealously pursuing God. That's their calling. Now your life isn't, you're not an apostle. You're not a first century apostle. Your life will look different. I get that. But, but the, the, the Christian life that is framed in scripture is a, is a, is a serious pursuit of righteousness. And we just don't take righteousness strong enough in the church today because of grace. And that's not grace's fault. That's our fault to abuse the very thing that made it possible for us to obey grace. So we have this imperfect and not always obedient Reality to ourselves, but genuine believers will pursue obedience. They will grow in obedience. They will pursue faithfulness to God's word. So the question is, well, what do we do? What about when we do sin, right? Then what does that mean to my faith? Well, you're telling me that Christians will obey. These are the conditional statements that were read in scripture. If you are my disciples, you will abide in my love. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So if we don't do those things, then we're not those things. So what happens when I sin then? What happens to my relationship with Jesus when I do sin? Because I know it's going to happen. 
As much as the Bible demands obedience from believers, the Bible also assumes, not permits, but assumes that believers will also disobey. And when we disobey, what are we to do? If these conditional statements are true, then I'm in trouble the moment I disobey. Like, I guess I'm not a disciple of Jesus anymore because I just disobeyed. That's not what it's teaching. So what does that mean? You can see that scripture makes some assertive truths, okay? Uh, what we see from these conditional statements is that believers will obey. And what we know is that believers will sometimes sin because they are not yet perfect. So how do we reconcile these two truths? That we've got these conditional statements about my relationship with God, that disciples of Jesus will obey, but I know I won't always obey. What do I do? Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That's your answer. Repent and turn to your first love. Return to Christ. Return to the good works of Jesus that have been worked out through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Return to that. Repent. Repentance means 180, right? Stopping sin and turning and going the other way. Repent of your sin. James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's not about how we, it's not about the fact that we sin. It's about how we respond to sin. Because if these conditional statements are true, and ultimately what these conditional statements reveal is Christians will obey. Well, if I don't obey, I'm not a Christian. Well, now that's a works-based eternal security. So the moment I disobey, I become not a Christian. That's certainly not what the Bible teaches. So how do these conditional statements function in the light of the fact that I will sin? I don't want to sin, but I just, I know it's going to happen. And God, by his grace, provides an answer. And the answer is repentance. Brokenness. Humility. A broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51 is the answer. Because Jesus' first command in the Gospel of Mark is repent and believe. And every time, I mean, he's speaking specifically repenting and believing in the gospel. So that's a repentance that leads to your salvation. But this idea of repentance, repenting from your sin is an act of obedience. So listen to the grace of God in this whole picture. There's conditional statements. Christians will obey. Well, I'm a Christian and I don't always obey. So if I don't obey, then boop, I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, that can't be true because eternal security is found in Christ and being in Christ and my activities do not determine whether I'm saved or not. And the whole premise of these conditions is that what Jesus is really getting at, what John and Peter or what John and Paul are really getting at is that the believer will obey because he has something that causes him to obey the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And so the Spirit causes obedience. But, like Paul says, sometimes I'm not in the Spirit, and sometimes my flesh prevails, and sometimes I sin. Oops, guess I'm not a Christian anymore, because Jesus said Christians will obey. I didn't obey, guess I'm not a Christian. And by God's grace, he goes, wait, 
You just disobeyed me. That's not what Christians do. So now I'm going to put, by the power of my spirit, I'm going to speak to your heart and mind. I'm going to convict your heart and mind of that sin. And I'm going to whisper to you through my word, repent. Be broken. Have a contrite and broken heart. Be humbled before the Lord God Almighty. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Recognize my glory and my might and my power and my strength and my directions and command that you obey me, which you have just broken. You just disobeyed the Almighty God. Who do you think you are? Now, he's not so rough. He's super gracious, kind, and loving. And he goes, I have, though, because I love you so much, my child, I have made a way out. This disobedience you just did isn't the end of your life. You don't suddenly lose your salvation. Because even though you just disobeyed, I have now laid before you another opportunity to obey me in response to your disobedience. In response to your disobedience, I want you to repent as an act of obedience. To show me, or as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, prove to be my disciples. Prove to me that you're my disciple. I know you just sinned, and my disciples don't sin, but you just did. Now prove that you're still mine by obeying me with this opportunity that I've given you, and repent. You know what that requires? And none of that is conditioned. None of that part is conditioned. I mean, if it, it's conditioned in the sense that if you sin and then the Spirit convicts you of repentance, to repent, or, you're, or you should repent, and you don't repent, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to repent. And then you sin again, I'm not going to repent. Sin again, I'm not going to repent. And then someone calls you, hey, dude, you need to, that was sin. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to repent, 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 I'm never going to repent. You're not a believer. That's a reality. I mean, like, I'm not the judge. I'm not saying I know who's who and what's what. I'm just saying that's not the biblical picture of a believer. Here's the beauty of these conditional statements. God demands your obedience, but you're going to fail. We all know it's going to happen. This is why the humility of Christ needs to shine brightly in us. We need to be humbled by the presence and reality of who God is because when we do disobey him, and we will, we have to fall on our face Before the presence of God in absolute fear, like Isaiah does in Isaiah 6 and go, what, what am I doing in the presence of God? I don't belong here. And God goes, yeah, I know. And that's how awesome my grace is because you don't belong here. And you just sinned, revealing that you don't belong here. But that just magnifies the beauty and the power of my gospel and my grace. And not only have you just proven that you don't belong here by sinning, I want you to prove that you do belong here. Repent. We have to, and repentance is only going to come in your life when you hate sin. If you don't hate sin, you will not repent because you won't think it's a big enough deal. It requires humility and brokenness. It requires It requires being in the word and knowing the God who says that I am a terrifying being and you don't want to enter my wrath. Recognizing that I don't want to know that God 
And that's not, that is not, it, in no, no way, shape, or form is any of this teaching conveying or trying to convey this idea that like you better watch out or you're going to go to hell. That is not the message the scripture ever conveys. It is this awesome a tapestry that God has created, which is you haven't earned your salvation. Christ earned it for you. You don't keep your salvation. Christ keeps it for you. You don't even do your own obedience. The Holy Spirit causes obedience. Although Paul does command us to participate in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which is our acts of obedience. So the Holy Spirit and the human Together, work toward obedience. And in that process, by the grace of God, you get to be a part of that process and grow. And along the way, all of us are going to fail and then fail and then fail and then fail. But it's all about how you respond. Because if you fail and fail and sin and sin and you never care, then do you know the God who does care that you just did that? This is why repentance is such a big deal. This is why humility is so massively important. This is why a love for righteousness is so, so, so important. This is why a hatred for sin is so vital to the church. So that when we sin, we can go, ah, ah, get that thing off me. Ew, I just sinned. Ah, Lord, what am I doing? Why did I just sin? I need, I need help. You got to fix me. We fall on our knees and we fall down on our face before God. Goes, whoa, whoa, it's me, Lord. I, I don't even deserve your salvation. I just revealed the treacherous wickedness of my heart and my mind. Fix me, God. I'm sorry I've sinned against you and against you alone. Like David says in Psalm 51, it is you whom I have offended. Fix me. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be like Jesus. I want to grow. I want to do what's right. Break me, Lord. Destroy me. Crush me. And then restore to me the joy of my salvation, as David says in Psalm 51. That should be our response to sin. Not because we're like, uh-oh, I hope I can keep my salvation because uh, it's all works-based. No, because we fear the living God. Who has the power to send us to hell? Jesus said, don't fear man. What's man going to do to you? Kill you? Fear God who can send you to an eternal hell. That's Jesus' thoughts on it. We should hate our sin so much and love our God so much that the idea that we could be a child of that very God and a representation of Christ and yet sin without any remorse or desire to repent at all is insane. When it comes to Christianity, you can't live that kind of Christian life. It's not the Christian life. And the only way you're going to learn to hate sin and love righteousness is if you are in this. If you are in prayer and in communion with God and in the word and communion with God's body and involved in the services of the church and the participation of the body and giving and serving and practicing the godly disciplines, you have to pursue God to know the God whom you should fear so that when you sin, you are falling before him, terrified of the reality of who he is and simultaneously 
thankful and grateful and exalting and praising him that you aren't going to hell by his grace in Jesus Christ. And from that very grace, you turn to God and say, but I have offended you with my sin. Father, as your child, discipline me. Do your, do your work, God. Chisel me. Break me down. Do what it takes. I don't want to do it. I know I don't want to do it. I really don't want to do it. It's going to hurt. God, I really, it's a terrifying prayer. And then he does it. And then he shapes you. And then you become more like Christ. And you start to taste the fruit of righteousness. And you go, whoa. This tastes delicious. This is what it feels like to follow Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's hard, but here's the beauty. Not a single one of you should ever or will ever have to do it alone. You not only have your God, you not only have the power of the Spirit, you not only have the Spirit in you, it is not, not only does Christ dwell in you, but you also have the body. Which is why James says, confess your sins to one another. You don't have to do it alone. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. appreciate you in ways that we can't even really articulate. It is only by your grace that we can obey. It's only by your grace that we get to know you. It's only by your grace that we can even repent when we disobey. And it's only by your grace we are secured in our salvation in Christ. It's only by your grace that we're here today. It's only by your grace that I get to preach your gospel. It's only by your grace that they get to hear your gospel. It's only by your grace that you have given us today, uh, Jim and Janice, to come and share their ministry and their mission of teaching young people the truths that we were just talking about, the the love for God, a desire for Jesus, a command to obey, uh, a knowledge of your grace, a a genuine heart of repentance and hatred for sin and love for righteousness. I, I pray for Jim and Janice as they pursue that, continue to pursue the hearts and minds of those young people, maybe some of them not so young either, but just prepare that, And prepare a way before them, pave a path of good works that they get to walk in. And do the same for us. It is terrifying to think that you are a God whose vengeance and wrath is just unfathomable. But when we get to think about that, we get this joy of not having to fear the consequence, but rejoice in your goodness to save us from it and let that joy turn into righteousness we're going to fail you God we know it and we just love that you're gracious just ask that you would help us to have a humble heart that is joyfully repentant we love you we thank you for your son Jesus pray that you would do your work in this church in Jesus name amen